Welcome to Out of Zion with Susan Michael, an exploration of the Bible and the land of Israel. From ancient biblical sites to the story behind the stories, join Susan on a journey through the most exciting book on the planet. Hit the subscribe button for future episodes, which will deepen your faith and bring the Bible to life. And now, here's our host, Susan Michael. Hey there. Welcome back. This is the 3D Jesus series, and we're on part four about Jesus's Galilean ministry. I hope that you have enjoyed what we've covered so far and that Jesus is beginning to become more alive to you than he ever has before. That's my prayer for you, that Jesus comes alive. He becomes three-dimensional as you see him walking in the land within his cultural setting, his religious setting, and you understand how very real he was and he is. So Jesus's uh, childhood is over now, and we're going. We're entering his adult life and his ministry. And so his ministry begins with being baptized by John the Baptist at the River Jordan. This is when the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and his ministry begins. The first miracle recorded by Jesus is the famous one about the wedding of Cana, where he goes with his disciples and his mother says that they are running out of wine. Uh, weddings at the time were often a multi-day event, sometimes as many as seven days, and the guests have to be fed. And they were at some point in this wedding running out of wine, and so Jesus takes water and turns it into wine. We've all heard the story. I find it curious that Jesus's mother knew that he could take care of this problem. And what that tells me is that this was not the first miracle by Jesus. This is just the first one that we have recorded uh, in the Bible. I think he must have done a number of things in the home so Mary knew exactly that Jesus could take care of the situation. And she commanded the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. And uh, so they did and Jesus performed this uh, miracle. There's been many sermons preached on the meaning of the miracle, and I'm not going to take time to do that. Um, after this story, then, we see Jesus migrates away from Nazareth to the Sea of Galilee area. The Sea of Galilee is actually not a sea. It's a large lake, uh, but in Hebrew, it's called a sea. And it's about 13 uh, miles long and about eight miles wide. It's actually shaped in the shape of a harp. And so in Hebrew, it's known as Kinneret, which is a harp. So it's the Sea of Kinneret. It is referred to it as that at least one time uh, in the Gospels. The Sea of Galilee at the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee is where most of Jesus's ministry took place. They call it the Evangelical Triangle because it's in that area where so many of the stories that we read about in the Gospels uh, take place. It happens to be up in that northwest corner. There are seven hot springs that are taking warm water into the Sea of Galilee. And because of that warm water, that's where the fishing stories take place. The tilapia is a, a warm water fish, 
And so they would congregate there in those warmer waters. And so a number of our stories uh, we find take place right there in that northwest corner. Also, the Sea of Galilee is known for very, very uh, violent storms that come upon you suddenly. And we do have one of those stories in the New Testament of Jesus and the disciples out on the boat, and one of these mean storms comes up very quickly. And it's life-threatening. They're very violent storms. And this has to do with the fact that the Sea of Galilee is down, as I said, it's the lowest freshwater body of water on the planet. And to its right are the high mountain range of uh, the Golan Heights and of Jordan. And um, to its west uh, is another set of hills, the Arbel Cliffs. And then there is a valley that goes straight west all the way over to the Mediterranean Sea. That valley is known as the Valley of Jezreel. And there is a famous um, roadway that came from Egypt up the Mediterranean Sea, and then it turned inwards and went across that Jezreel Valley to the Sea of Galilee, and then went on uh, northeastward into Assyria. So this was a very, very important and busy place. There was a lot of traffic. There was a lot of commerce. And the Sea of Galilee was the largest oasis on that road from Egypt to Assyria. So now right there in that northwest corner is the town that Jesus made his home base. It actually is referred to as his home, and that is the town of Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum is a town of roughly about a thousand or fifteen hundred people, so it's sizable for the time. And um, it is right there, and one of our famous disciples' home is in Capernaum, and that's Simon Peter. And so we have Jesus staying there uh, in the home of Simon Peter and in the hometown of Simon Peter at Capernaum, and it says that he taught in the synagogue there. Now, when you go with me to Israel, for sure we will go to Capernaum, and you'll be able to see the remains of that town. You will see the remains of the ancient synagogue. Now, the synagogue that was there at the time of Jesus, what we would call the first century synagogue, was later uh, destroyed and a new one built on top of it in the fourth century. So what you will see standing there is the remains of the fourth century synagogue. But you can look down at the base of that synagogue and you'll see the dark basalt stone that you know is from the first century. It's the foundations of that first century synagogue that Jesus would have stood in and taught in. Right in front of that synagogue and not too far away is the remains of a housing division. Uh, you know, homes then were very close, and in a way it was kind of a communal living situation. Um, they lived, Families lived very close to each other. It's not like today here in the United States. And uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law uh, was ill one day, it says, and Jesus left the synagogue. And he went to the home, and she was very ill, 
and he healed her. And over the remains of that housing, uh, that unit within um, a, a, a gathering of homes, over the top of it has been built a church. Now, this church that's over it today is on, you could say, on stilts. It's built up above the ground so that it didn't disturb the stones. And you can stand there underneath the church and look at the stones. You can go into the church and look through a, a glass um, place in the middle of the floor, and you can look down to the very stones that were of the house of Simon Peter. Now, you might be asking, how do we really know that that's the house? And it's a very strong possibility it is the house. And this is how we know this. Uh, back in the 4th century, in the early 300s AD, when the Roman Empire became Christian and Constantine declared Christianity to be the state religion, his mother, Helena, made a trip to the Holy Land. And she researched these various sites in the ministry of Jesus and she, once she found what the locals told her was the site, then she would have churches built over the site or, or beside it to commemorate that. And so when we know that there was a 4th century church built in an area, it tells us that the locals told Helena and others that traveled to the Holy Land at that time that these were the various locations. And so um, in this situation, in this house, it's well known that this one unit was plastered over many times over the years and over the probably decades and centuries. Uh, it was replastered and there was Christian graffiti underneath some of these layers of plaster where you saw the name Yeshua um, or you saw the name of Peter and you saw certain graffiti that you knew it was a place of prayer and of worship. And you could tell that it had been preserved. So for instance, it wasn't just renovated, it was actually preserved in the condition that it was in in the first century. So this is a very good indication that this was known to be the home of Simon Peter. Now today, when you look at it, it's very hard to tell anything. It's, it's the stone floor, basically, and a few other stones. And um, you have to take the word of the archeologist as in terms of what was found there and uh, what it would have looked like when it was actually built with walls and a roof over it. But that is uh, Capernaum, and that's where uh, we know that Jesus spent a lot of his time. A lot of the stories took place there. Um, we also know that Jesus did many, many more miracles in that area than the New Testament tells us. And we know that because Jesus alludes to it. Um, he In one scripture in Matthew 11, he said that if the pagan cities of Tyre and Sidon, which are today in Lebanon, at that point right north of Israel, he said, if Tyre and Sidon had seen the works, the mighty works that had been done, not only in Capernaum, but in Bethsaida and in Chorazin, the people would have repented long ago, he said. And um, so he's saying that so many miracles were done in these three cities, and yet they still 
didn't repent, they still didn't follow him. And it's interesting to see that those three cities today uh, lay in ruins. They were destroyed by an earthquake, um, probably in the early uh, 4th century, late 4th century. Uh, there was another earthquake in the 8th century. They were destroyed and never inhabited again. But we know from this that there were many miracles done in Chorazin and Bethsaida, and yet we don't have them recorded in the New Testament. So the New Testament tells us what we need to know, but my point is this, that we, we shouldn't just be limited to it and understand that uh, so much more took place. And Mark said at the end of his gospel, he said, if I were to have written everything that Jesus said and did, it would have taken so many more books uh, to record it all. But we're so grateful for what we do know and what we do have recorded. Now from Capernaum right up the hillside, there is a story where Jesus retreated away up the hillside. And, um, and then he from there gave the Sermon on the Mount, or the famous sermon called the Beatitudes, where he went through uh, and gave the ten uh, Beatitudes. Now, what I want to point out to you, I, I don't have time today to give you all these teachings of what Jesus taught and what he did. What I'm wanting to do is give you the setting and to understand how accurate the portrayal is of what Jesus said and did. Here on this hillside, in this area, we have this unique formation um, of a hill that's shaped like what I would call a theater. It's like a 180 degree incline in the hillside. And the hill is made of basalt stone that acts, it amplifies what is said. So it's been tested and it's been proven. You can stand midway up that hill or all the way up that hill and speak and you can be heard all the way down at the bottom of the hill standing on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And if the wind is blowing in the other direction, you can stand on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and you can be heard at the top of the hill because of the unique shape there and because of the basalt stone that acts as the amplification. It's as though the earth itself had been prepared for the ministry of Jesus. And from there, he gave this famous Sermon on the Mount. In that area, he also fed the 5,000. And yes, they could have fit in that area and they could have heard him. And when I say that they can fit there, you can go there and look at it today. But in the year 2000, when the Pope was visiting the Holy Land, they actually prepared that area to hold a hundred thousand people to hear the Pope. Now it rained that day, so they didn't have that many, but they were prepared for it and said that it could hold as many as a hundred thousand. So for sure, the 5,000 that Jesus fed probably was more like 15,000 people when you added up the families. For sure, it could have held that. Now, right south of Capernaum, down the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, we come to the town of Magdala. And I mentioned this, it's very significant what was found here at Magdala. 
And that is that they found the remains of another first century synagogue, but this one had not been built over. And so this one, you can see the floor of the first century synagogue. And we can be so certain that Jesus stood there on that floor in that synagogue. Why? Because two gospels tell us that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages in the area and he taught in their synagogues. So we can be very, very certain that this one uh, he stood in. Also, we have a story in Matthew 15 where Jesus uh, had just healed the 5,000. It says he got in a boat and he came down to the area of Magdala. And when he came into the town, which it's right there on the sea, it had a, a port, um, he came into the town and it says that the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to him to test him. So we can be pretty sure that that story took place right outside that first century synagogue, which may have been where Jesus was headed to. Magdala is also famous for something else. This was the hometown of Mary Magdalene. Magdalene means she was of Magdala. And so this was her hometown. When you go there with me, it's one of my favorite places because of the first century synagogue, but also because the um, the Catholics that uh, own this area, they actually are the ones that uncovered the, uh, the first century city of Magdala. When they were building there, they uncovered it all. And they built a beautiful chapel right on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, where you can go in and you're usually hot and tired from touring. And you can sit there in that chapel and look through the all glass windows to the Sea of Galilee. And they built a little infinity pool so that when you're sitting there in the pew, all you see is water all the way to the Sea of Galilee. And there, um, the pulpit in this chapel is shaped like a first century fishing boat. So if you are actually going to attend a service there, the priest or pastor will be standing in what looks to be a first century fishing boat. It's a very special place. And this chapel was built uh, in memory of not just Mary of Magdala, but actually of all the women uh, that followed Jesus. Um, the name of this chapel is in uh, Latin, which I don't know how to pronounce it exactly, but it's Duke in Altum, and that means launch into the deep. And it's uh, built in commemoration of the famous story where uh, the disciples had been fishing all night, and Jesus told them to launch out on the other side of the boat, and uh, they launched their nets and brought in a miraculous load of fish. Now, the Sea of Galilee, this northwest corner, was a very Jewish area of the Sea of Galilee. But on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, it was Gentile. And therefore, when it said that Jesus crossed over to the other side, it means he actually crossed over into a more Gentile area. And that's where we have the story of uh, the feeding of the 4,000, and which is full of, of um, symbolism and significance, but also the healing of the demoniac 
who uh, was in the cave there. And it really seemed to imply a worship of Baal, and he had been possessed by these demons from this pagan worship. And when Jesus set him free from these demons, it said that they went in, he allowed them to go into a herd of pigs, which uh, ran into the water. Now, what significance here is that you would never have a herd of pigs over on the west side of the Sea of Galilee because that was the Jewish territory. But over in the pagan, more Greek uh, area, which was Roman, Brun, you had pigs and you had this demoniac, which seemed to be part of a, a Baal worship. So after this story, it says that Jesus took three of, took his disciples into the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi is really close to the border between the pagan west side and, sorry, the pagan east side and the Jewish west side. It's right outside of the town of Bethsaida. And at Caesarea Philippi, there was a huge amount of pagan god worship, and there was actually a cavern in a cave that went deep into the earth, and they called that the gates of hell. And there was pagan worship that took place there in Caesarea Philippi. So I don't believe Jesus actually entered Caesarea Philippi for that reason, but it says that he took his disciples into the region around Caesarea Philippi, and this is where he begins to question them. He has now spent a couple of years with them. So he asked them, who do men say that I am? They said, well, some say that you're Elijah, and some say you're a prophet. And he said, but who do you say I am? And that's where Peter said that thou art the Christ, the Messiah. This is a very, very significant story in our whole story of Jesus. It's as though he gave them time to get to know him, to hear him, to witness the miracles, to follow him closely as a disciple would. You know, Jesus gathering disciples around him was very, very common at the time. There were other rabbis that had disciples following them, but this rabbi was different. He not only did miracles, and miracles that no one had seen before, but he taught with authority, and they had never heard a rabbi speak and teach the way Jesus did. So now comes the point, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, thou art the Christ, the Messiah. And he tells them not to tell anyone. And then it says that after six days, he takes them up on a hill. Now, we assume that this took place really close to this region again, and that this hill that he took them up was a part of the range of mountains there in the north of Israel called the Hermon Mountains, or you would pronounce it Hermon. In English, we pronounce it Hermon, but in Hebrew, it's Hermon. And that's the highest mountain in Israel where they do have snow on the top of Mount Hermon. And you can go up there today and you can ski. They have a ski lift. But it's a part of a whole range and there are lower hills uh, that come down to eventually this area around the Sea of Galilee. And so we think that Jesus took his disciples up on one of those hills. 
It's a very, very interesting story, and it's highly significant. It says that after six days, that Jesus and three of the disciples climbed up the high mountain. Well, the high mountain, that would be Mount Hermon. And like Moses, when Moses went up on Sinai, I want to remind you, it says that Moses went up on Mount on the Sinai, Mount Sinai, and that's where God gave him the Torah, and God invited him to ascend it. And it said that for six days, he was surrounded by a cloud of glory. And on the seventh day then, the Lord called from that cloud, and he spoke to Moses. And here we have in this story, it says that after six days, Jesus took three of the disciples up to the high mountain, and there they were enveloped by a cloud of glory. And like Moses, they heard the voice of God speaking. And like Moses, Jesus radiated the presence. But who did they see there? They actually saw Moses there in this cloud and somebody else, Elijah the prophet. Why is that? Well, Elijah the prophet is the only other person in the Bible who also ascended Sinai and heard God speak to him. Also, the symbolism of Jesus' meeting with Moses and Elijah is that Moses symbolized the law and Elijah symbolized the prophets, meaning the entirety of God's word to the Jewish people, the law and the prophets, were here verifying Jesus. It was a verification of who Jesus was. And the disciples, two of the disciples saw this. And when they came down, Jesus told them, don't tell anyone. He knew that this was probably a bit much. This was an earth-shaking revelation of who he was. And he told them, don't tell anyone, but he wanted them to know. And from this point forward, he began to emphasize to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer there at the hands of the leaders and he must die. They maybe didn't understand what he was telling them, but he told them over and over. And then soon after this, he leaves for Jerusalem. Next time when we're together, we're going to talk about his time in Jerusalem. But this brings today to an end of understanding the Galilee ministry where Jesus revealed who he was to his followers. And then he said, now is the time I must go to Jerusalem. So I'll see you back here next time. We'll talk about Jesus in Jerusalem. And until then, God bless. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Out of Zion with Susan Michael. Be sure to subscribe to Out of Zion now on Apple Podcasts, cpnshows.com, YouTube, or wherever you like to listen and learn. Out of Zion with Susan Michael is a production of ICEJ USA, all rights reserved.